0: According to the 2020 U.S. Census, 23% of children in the United States live in a single-parent household. That 23%, which represents 18.5 million children, and just for reference, uh, the total population of Washington is just 7.7 million. That 23%, that 18.5 million children, is higher than any other nation in the world. The United Kingdom is a close second to us at 21%, but the world average is way down at 7%. And what this means is that in America right now, almost one out of every four children is growing up without both father and mother in the home. There are many factors that have contributed to this destruction of the family, but chief among our sins are divorce and sex outside of marriage. Divorce and sex outside of marriage. In America, the divorce rate is roughly 44% and half of second marriages also end in divorce. As for sex outside of marriage, what the Bible calls fornication, studies have shown that by the age of 44, 95% of Americans have had sex outside of marriage. 95%. So if you make it to your wedding night as a virgin, you are now in a small minority of the American population. And if you make it to the age of 44 without having sex outside of your marriage, you are, you are in an even smaller minority, 5% of the entire population. Uh, these numbers are staggering, and they reveal to us many things, especially why it is that places like Planned Parenthood are still in business. As Jesus said, we are an evil, an adulterous generation, We are a nation of fornicators, murderers, and covenant breakers. And unless we repent, unless we make confession and truly renounce this sexual anarchy, uh, we will die in our sins. Our text this morning is a very sober and pointed rejection of American views and laws regarding marriage and divorce. Whereas our nation has embraced no-fault divorce and by and large has decriminalized adultery. Uh, So adultery is not a crime in Washington state. And uh, even in the very conservative state of Idaho from which I just came, uh, they just decriminalized adultery in 2022. So times are a in, right? Uh, Nevertheless, uh, the law of God remains unchanged. And no matter how creative ancient or modern Pharisees might be, Jesus upholds and reaffirms what scripture has always taught. And it is to that teaching that we turn now. So considering our text, remember the context of these verses is Jesus teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. He has already said that whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He's already told them that. And while uh, it's very easy to pay lip service to that idea of denying ourselves, uh, Jesus is not playing around. And he begins to poke us and prod us in all the places that we are not actually following him. Last week, Jesus rebuked his disciples for wanting to be great in the eyes of the world. He told them that if they want to enter the kingdom of heaven, they must become as children. He also said that if we want to avoid the eternal punishment of hell, then we must be willing to cut off hand, foot, and eye, or anything else that causes us to sin. We'll see in the next section of our text that Jesus will rebuke us for our low view of children and their ability to come to him. But before that, he's going to rebuke us for our low views of marriage and the marriage covenant. So by all means, let us receive this rebuke. Starting in verse 1, he says, And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again, and as he was wont, he taught them again. So at this stage in Christ's ministry, Jesus is still a very popular teacher, crowds continue to follow him, and we are told that he is now in the coast of Judea by the farther side of the Jordan. And this is an important detail because if we trace Jesus' journey, we see that he has now entered back into the territory of Herod Antipas. Back in Mark 6, we saw that Herod Antipas had put John the Baptist to death, and he had done so under pressure from his wife Herodias. Herodias. And do you remember the reason why Herodias did not like John the Baptist? Mark 6.18 says, For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. So Herodias, Herod's wife, had committed adultery. She had unlawfully divorced her husband Philip and was now living in an adulterous marriage with Herod. And because Philip was Herod's half-brother, this was also an incestuous marriage as well. So John the Baptist was executed because he preached the righteous law of God to Herod. No matter what the divorce and remarriage laws were in that region, John declared God's unchangeable moral law to him. And when God's law and man's law come into conflict, as it is presently in our nation, the rule for the Christian is always, we must obey God rather than man. We see in verse two that the Pharisees are going to try to use this kind of change in location, change of jurisdiction to their advantage. If they can get Jesus to run afoul of Herod, kind of like John did, perhaps by taking a strong stance against Herod's marriage, perhaps Herod will kill him too. They can get Herod to do their job for him. Or, alternatively, if they can get Jesus to capitulate in his views of marriage to save his skin, then they can just discredit him as a prophet. Either way, it's a win-win for them, or so they hope. <coughs> Excuse me. Continuing in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? So Mark tells us up front that this was not an honest question, but rather a malicious attempt to entrap Jesus. Although it is possible to ask this question honestly, it is a very dangerous question to ask because what are the motives behind such a question? The Pharisees ask, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And if you know the law of God well, you know that this is a trick question. If Jesus answers with a simple no, well, they'll say he has contradicted the law of God, which clearly regulates divorce in Deuteronomy 24 and elsewhere. If Jesus answers with a simple yes, well, they'll say he is a libertine and he has relaxed the law of God, therefore making him a false prophet. This is one of those questions that is so nuanced in its answer that attempting to give an immediate response On the spot, with a hostile interlocutor, and the crowd watching is no easy task. How many of us would stumble if this same question were placed before us in this kind of situation? And thus we see in the next verse the genius and wisdom of Jesus Christ. We see how Jesus answers this question. Verse 3, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Well, what did Moses command you? When someone asks an honest question in order to learn something, uh, and we know the answer, we should just tell them the truth right away. But what is the best response to those who ask us questions in order to then slander us? How do you answer a dishonest question? Well, the best response, according to Jesus' example, is to make them to say what their own position is and to press them to be consistent or to show themselves to be inconsistent with whatever authority they claim to abide by. And so to do this, Jesus responds with a question. What did Moses command you? And this also is a kind of trick question from Jesus because Moses never commanded divorce. And Jesus is going to make them acknowledge this. Verse 4, And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. So this word suffer, epitrepo, means to allow or to permit. And so they grant Jesus' point that there is no positive command in Scripture for a man to divorce his wife. There is only this regulation in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, where a woman is prevented from remarrying her first husband after a second marriage. And this was a hotly debated passage in the first century and even is in some cases still today. So let me read you uh, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. And this is one of those places where uh, the ESV is actually a a much better translation than the King James. King James can obscure it a little bit. So this is Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. This is the text that the Pharisees are going back to. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. All right. This is a tough text. And the Jews themselves disagreed over its interpretation. But by choosing this as their proof text, the Pharisees have unknowingly done two things. They've fallen themselves into the trap they set for Jesus. So two things they've done unknowingly. Number one, by bringing this forward as their proof text, they convict themselves as being adulterers at heart. By choosing Deuteronomy 24 as their proof text for divorce, they reveal their own interpretation of it, which is that God's regulation of an already sinful circumstance is actually a license to commit that sin. That's how they're reading the text. That's how they're using it. Corrupt hearts produce corrupt interpretations of Scripture. Secondly, they fail to actually answer Jesus' question. Because what did Moses command? He he commanded many things. That's what Jesus asked them. There are many texts that they could have brought forth but did not. And so Jesus is actually going to answer his own question in the following verses. So verses five to nine. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. So what does Jesus do here? Well, first, Jesus refutes their corruption of Deuteronomy 24. He explains that it is only because of the hardness of their hearts that God gave them that command. Uh, We could uh, draw an analogy between the various commands that regulate polygamy. Just because God commands that if a man takes a second wife, he must not diminish the food, clothing, and marriage duty of his first wife, does not mean that God condones or approves of getting a second wife, right? The law is simply mitigating the bad effects of an already sinful situation. This is how gracious the law of God is. God gives commands, and he's like, and I know you're going to break this, so here's the command, the regulation for when you guys don't do the first thing I told you not to do, right? This is how gracious the law of God is. Likewise with slavery, Just because God regulates how and when certain slaves are are to be released uh, does not mean we should all become slave traders. And yet this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They're taking the regulation of divorce in Deuteronomy 24 and they're turning it into a justification for them getting divorces. Jesus' response is that this precept was only given because of the hardness of their hearts. In other words, if husbands and wives... Had soft hearts, there would never be an occasion for divorce. And therefore, there would be no need for God to say anything about it, to regulate it in His Word. So, having refuted their corruption of God's law, Jesus then proceeds to set before them what God has always required. So, what did Moses command? Jesus brings forth two witnesses from the book of Genesis. So Genesis one twenty one and Genesis 2.24. I'll read these two texts in full that Jesus quotes. So Genesis one twenty one says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So with these two quotations, Jesus reaffirms that marriage is a divine institution. It's not something that man came up with. It's something that God ordained. And in marriage, there is one man and there is one woman, and they are united in a one flesh union for life. Therefore, what God has brought together in marriage, no man is to break apart. This teaching comes as a surprise to the disciples who ask Jesus about it later. And if you read the parallel to the same scene in Matthew's version, uh, the disciples say this, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So they hear Jesus teaching about this uh, one flesh union for life. And the disciples think "We we should just stay single then. Right, So the, the, the disciples feel that if uh, fornication, porneia, is the only lawful grounds wherein a divorce might be permitted, which is what Jesus teaches in Matthew 19, 9, it's better to just stay single. That's too high a bar. They rightly recognize, the disciples rightly recognize the seriousness of Jesus' teaching about what happens in a marriage. God brings man and woman together and therefore nothing should break it apart. It's like the mystery of marriage. It's something that God does. He makes two into one flesh. Like many of us, the disciples have imbibed their evil generation's ideas about easy divorce and remarriage. And so it is a shock to the system to hear Jesus restating this creational command and applying it as he does. In verses 10 to 12, the disciples ask Jesus about this and receive additional instructions from him about what constitutes adultery. So verses 10 to 12, and in the house, his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he saith unto them, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. So here Jesus teaches that an unlawful divorce is itself adultery. It is a breaking of the seventh commandment. An unlawful divorce, what is an unlawful divorce? An unlawful divorce is any divorce that takes place on grounds other than fornication. In Greek, this is porneia. Jesus says in Matthew nineteen nine, and I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So according to Jesus, any unlawful divorce is itself an act of adultery. And under the law of God, adultery is a capital offense. It can warrant the death penalty. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Likewise, in Deuteronomy 22.22 it says, If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they shall both of them die, both the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. So whereas first century Jews and 21st century Americans think of adultery only in terms of a married person having sex outside of the marriage covenant, Jesus clarifies that an unlawful divorce, such as the divorces the Pharisees were seeking to justify, those also constitute adultery. In both cases, the man or the woman is breaking the one flesh union that God made, Either by joining their bodies to someone who is not their spouse or by severing their spouse from themselves by an unlawfully grounded divorce. Jesus says unlawful divorce is adultery. And therefore, as with adultery, both adulterer and adulteress deserve to die. Under the law of God, these are not merely uh, venial sins that can be forgiven at the altar. They are criminal acts that deserve criminal punishment. These are not just sins. These are actually crimes. All right. Well, that's the exposition of our text. And these are hard words for an adulterous generation to hear. Uh, And next week, I'm going to give a kind of an extra sermon on this topic of divorce and remarriage. So if you guys have questions, please do email me uh, Monday or Tuesday before I I prep. Uh, But I want to close with some practical applications for a a few different groups of people uh, based on uh, this text. So first, to those of you who are young and unmarried and hope to be married one day, you are growing up in a world that has normalized what God has criminalized. You're growing in a world that has normalized what God has criminalized, whether that be sodomy, or homosexuality, or abortion, or divorce, or adultery. You are living in a lawless culture that is weighed down by blood guilt, right? N- nobody, <laughs> nobody in America has the moral high ground, right? We look down at these other barbaric nations, but look at us, right? And so heed the words of 1 John 2, 15 to 16, which says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So if you would make it to your wedding day as a pure and holy man or woman, you will bring great honor to God and be a great blessing to your spouse. And so pursue, pursue hard the purity, the chastity, and holiness that God requires of all of us to pursue. As Paul says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Second Timothy two twenty Second, to those of you who are presently married, keep your marriage vows, Remember what you swore to do before the Lord and witnesses. Remember the words of Hebrews 13:4. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Before a man or a woman ever commits the physical act of adultery, they have already committed countless acts of adultery of the heart. And so confess those sins of your imagination those adulteries of the heart, to the Lord. Kill the sin there. Kill the sin in your heart, in your mind, before it comes out of you. And then plead with the Lord to keep you from temptation and the evil one. Third, to those who have committed adultery or who are presently entangled in an adulterous marriage, sin makes life complicated. Sin always makes life complicated. And there are times when you simply cannot unscramble the egg. But God has given us, in his word, clear directions for how to deal with sin. But few people have the will to actually obey him. Next week, I'll address this in greater detail. But for now, the place to start is with confession and true repentance, right? If you feel like I'm the egg that cannot be unscrambled, well, look to the Lord, right? You're not the first to be in such a situation. If you have committed adultery, you can thank God that although you deserve to die, uh, you're still living if you're in this room. And it just so happens that there is a psalm written by a fellow adulterer and murderer that can guide you in your repentance. It's one we recite a portion of every Sunday, and that is Psalm 51. We read in the heading of Psalm 51, a psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. For David, because he repented, his adultery was forgiven. God put away his sin so that he was not executed. But for the rest of his life, he suffered the consequences of that sin. And those consequences were devastating. Children died. A civil war happened. And David lost the moral authority he once had. And so if you have committed adultery, know that God can forgive your sins and use Psalm 51 as a guide to show you how to repent. And second, you should come and talk to me or one of the elders if you need help knowing what to do next. If you feel stuck, if you're unsure, well, God has given you the church. He's given you elders to help you walk your repentance out. There are few issues more difficult than untangling, unlawful, and adulterous marriages. You ask any pastor with any level of experience, he will tell you this. The hardest problems are these kinds of marriage problems that are like, there's just sin all the way down on all sides. Or it's like, how do you untangle this? But with God's help, you can actually live before the Lord with a good and clear conscience. God has not left us without instructions in this area. He's not surprised that America is this fornicating mess that it is. But it does take great wisdom and prudence to apply his word to each situation. And there are many uh, churches, pastors, teachers out there who will tell you all sorts of cuckoo things about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, okay? So I would spare you that. Come, come to your uh, pastor, come to your elders and talk to us. That's our job. All right, I'll close with this. Jesus died for sinners. He did not come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And the whole story of scripture is God making a way for his adulterous people to be reunited to him as a spotless bride. And so whatever mess you are in, Christ commands you to give that mess to him. Christ commands you to give that mess to him. That is what being converted to Christianity is. It's You coming with all of your sins, all the things that you don't want anyone to know about, and you you bring them to the Lord, right? His hands are always open. The only thing keeping you is you, right? God is anxious to forgive you. He is bursting with love for you. And if you come to him with a broken and contrite spirit, he will by no means cast you out. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.